yesterday evening talk is through interconnectedness. One of the noticeable and valuable awarenesses which is occurring in our present world in a, a small but nonetheless significant way is a movement or an expansion of our thinking processes from a small and restricted way to one which we might say expresses more directly and clearly, a global awareness. And that it seems to be something which is being, as it were, forced upon us. That as we begin to look as clearly and as objectively as we can to the world around and, and see the conflict and confusion which is self-evidently present, it's beginning to make its impact and its inroads on our hearts and our minds and on our thinking. And so as a result of this, there's an increasing amount of significant and valuable literature which is emerging. There's more attempts through the arts, religion, philosophy and science to bring about ways and means in which we can think at least initially think more expansively, think, as it were, beyond just ourselves. And of course we are being told, and rightly so, that unless we start thinking and responding to the world and the way that it actually is, then um, circumstances, the circumstances of the nature, will force themselves upon us and bringing with it greater conflict and confusion and suffering. And all, all of these various expressions which are taking place are helping us to, to see our actual connectedness to the world. And for a long time, and particularly our own culture, has been far too for far too many years, and particularly in the last century or two, born of a mind which is bent on exploitation, bent on gaining more and taking more. And the reality is that with this tremendous exploitation which is taking place, the resources are limited and we are right here and now in a crisis situation. And much of this we can ignore and forget and, as it were, proceed in our usual, rather sometimes blind ways with everyday life, with a kind of vague feeling that everything will be alright and things are secure. So sometimes when giving attention to connectedness in life, we rather think of it, perhaps rather exclusively, in just a, a constructive way, that life is one, we are all together, that the, there are these varying mutual influences which affect and support each other. And there's certainly a need, a, a greater need for that kind of acknowledgement. But, 
We have to go further than that. We have to look more, look more carefully than that. We have to look too, not only at the varying connections that we have with the Earth and the Earth's connections with ourselves, but equally, of course, the connections that we have with each other and all that is implied in that. At the beginning of the retreat, there were reference was made to this long-standing tradition of what is generally referred to as taking of the five precepts, meaning setting the tone, establishing for ourselves a certain ethical foundation for one's life, both for the implications that it has for us as individuals and the implications that it has for others. And in one of the old texts, one of the old Buddhist uh, texts, the, the Buddha has, in his reference to these um, foundations for an ethical basis, has referred to what's possible, what can occur through ignoring of them. And as he says, for those who, who, uh, who uh, kill such pe others live in fear of. And the, Im the actions of one brings about very easily, of course, certain other reactions from others. Those who kill others live in fear of. Those who threaten to kill others live in fear of. Those who, who steal, those who take that which is, isn't, isn't given. When, they, when, they, when such people are there, it brings a response from the world, a response of such people are not trusted. And then he, say, and then he says, there are those situations where people who ignore, shall we say, this, the, sig the significance of sexuality and sometimes falling into carelessness and abuse. And he says, this brings and unusually so, but at this particular time perhaps registers with us more, it brings about illness. It brings about illness. And certainly on this trip to the States at the present time, there's been so much talking and, and very understandably and so much in the newspapers and in literature and in, and in, in a diversity of <coughs> information with regard to this horrendous illness of, of AIDS and all the implications and potential ones for people. And all, in a way, are, all of us, to some degree, are affected by this, by this harsh reality. Harsh reality, <laughs> sometimes of perhaps our not knowing or not realizing or not understanding the power of sexuality. And the, and the impact that it can, that it can make. And that one, it's one of these areas in our life where it's necessary for all of us to be sensitive, be careful, pay, be, be aware, be mindful in these areas of life. Because one sees, and one sees again in, in, this, in this world, that we are so interconnected. Therefore, so much is communicated and transmitted from one to another and moves in, in this world, whether we like it or not. Or as I said the other evening, whether we're 
healthy or not. And it needs to be a the feel in this uh, world that we, that we are living, a greater sense about this interconnectedness. And it seems that sometimes when there's some imbalance in these areas, the, the nature of things is such, it tells us these things, it tells us if there is imbalance in no uncertain terms. Suffering itself, physical, psychological, spiritual suffering, in a way, is a communication that something is out of balance. That's how we know. The fourth one, of telling, of telling lie. That, that, that the motivation of the mind, which deceits and uh, cheats and uh, misleads and how easily, often for a whole variety of reasons, we try to manipulate the world, manipulate the circumstances. And one who is trapped in that kind of activity, the Buddha's response to that is, such a person cannot be easily believed. So, is it, so how we, as I say, brings out responses, brings out reactions from others. And he spoke, and then of the fifth precept, where one is subjected to um, being affected by, um, through drunkenness and through drug abuse and so forth. Again, not necessarily through any fault of one's own, but because the conditions were there, conditions set in a far distant past. How, and that brings, he says, the word he uses is pamada. How easily it brings heedlessness. Not through any fault, I want to emphasize that, but how the circumstances bring this about. So our interconnectedness with each other is of such an order that we recognize our connectedness throughout mutual relationship as on life, on earth, as friends, as participants in life, but we also equally recognize our interconnectedness in the way we influence and affect each other, the way we can support each other. You know, the Buddha has, in his uh, majestic wisdom, has given almost almost a transcendent significance to this. What I mean by that is, just as the beginning of the retreat, we, it is said, I take refuge. The way I tr put that in I, is, I make a commitment to awakening, to awakening, in a, awakening to reality of life, with all that's implied. I make a commitment to the Dharma, to the way of, of awareness and non-violence and and meditation and inquiry to help facilitate that awakening. And then he, he says, I make a commitment to the Sangha. Meaning, you know, I make a commitment to the community of women and men who are engaged in practice for the welfare of all beings. And those three, as it were, that what is called the triple gem, the three gems of life, 
of a responsible and caring human being, he places equal importance on the com contact with the community of men and women as he does on inner awakening itself. Emphasizing, re-emphasizing that interconnectedness. And we see that there are various expressions of this interconnectedness which are, which are taking place. A dear friend of a number of us here, because of the, the, the real degree of fear and insecurity and, and despair with regard to nuclear issues, the number of people who have nightmares, understandably over the state of our planet, who are sensitive to the planet, the number of people, the growing number of children who are, who are living without hope. It's getting reflected in their classroom essays and in their poetries and in their sense of hopelessness of being, going through an educational system which isn't preparing, to, preparing those young people for living in the real world. And so people like Joanna, who are conducting, Joanna Macy, who are conducting workshops and travelling to Sri Lanka to see the movements of self-help and community help and seeing what we can learn as a community of men and women together to help establish this interconnectedness. One of the things which our meditation practice, many aspects of this, one of the things which our meditation practice shows to us is when we began, when we started here, the first few days, you may well have felt and, and experienced nothing but diversity. You know, a, a kind of motley collection of human beings from varying backgrounds and uh, uh, in interests of varying uh, ages, etc., etc. And we come together and when one arrives, and in the first period all that one perhaps sees is the diversity. You know, this person is like this, this person is like, like that, this person dresses like this, this person does that, etc. And so within it, all that we are focusing on is the separateness of us all. And one begins to settle in, and without actually knowing people, without having any real meeting with them, except perhaps in a small group, something begins to change. It begins to change where it goes from diversity and the kind of judgments which we make about each other towards one of see feeling and sensing, in spite of ourselves, we might say, Sentencing, sensing sorry, a certain kind of unity. It begins, as it were, just initially, just to permeate. And so sometimes in the sitting meditation, when it's, when it's quiet and we are still and we're just being together, quite spontaneously the attention itself will open itself out. And when we just have a sense of a presence of a group of people sitting, still, being together, sharing a moment together. And, and so something is happening in our consciousness in which 
Yes, there's the acknowledgement of diversity, and we have what is called in the um, kind of ja local um, jargon here, the VRs and the VVs. For those of you who have not been fortunately initiated into this technical language, um, V means vipassana and R means romance, vipassana romance. means that one feels complete unity with everybody, but more with one. <laughs> and so there's a so some this special kind of u unity in which one fixes one's um, fo focus upon the uh, upon another person during the the course of the of the days here, and each time one you know walks out of the room and I mean how many days are we walking in and out of this hours and times are we walking in and out of this room of queuing for the food um, downstairs and it's bound to happen at some time you're both standing outside the toilet together downstairs <laughs> or coming in and out of the room or sitting at the same table and the mind in this new special unity which has been been discovered one starts drawing all manner of conclusions. It's our karmic destiny to be together. And, and we must have been together in our last lives. Well, maybe the last retreat anyway. <laughs> so, and, and the other is which takes place is the, are the VVs. The, 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 that's again Vipassana, the villain. There always has to be a villain. Even one notices often, not so much here, but sometimes in... Uh, in groups where uh, people are working together, often say in uh, workshops, therapy workshops, or in group meetings, there often has to be one who is the villain, one who, who is difficult, who is troublesome, who, who holds the whole proceedings up, you know, wh whatever it might be. And retreats are no different. You know. it's, um, it's okay to walk very slowly. One is completely supportive of everybody walking slowly. We've agreed that as long as you're not walking slowly in front of me. Then, that, then that's, that's where my unity breaks down, etc. So there are the VRs and the VVs which occur, and they add, as it were, an extra kind of um, image and uh, separation to what's occurring. And so sometimes we catch ourselves, we... we we see through this tendency of mind to isolate, to pick out, to pick upon, and learning to see it just for what it is. And it's not unusual, of course, for a variety of reasons, that there are outrageous projections are, are made, made on uh, retreats about other, other people. And just, again, catching that mind, which is um, moving in that way. In our looking and our and in this field of interconnectedness, there is we look and we see our practice in the body and the awareness of the body. And there's something of, in a way rather important here. Insofar as our normal perception of life is there is the world, the world of sights and sounds and other people and all which is happening around. And it's like the body itself, the life and the sensations of the body, while just transmitting life and communicating life, rather simultaneously 
appear to us as being something which creates a separation, a division between this and what's around. So that fact of one's physical sensations act in a way as a kind of wall, one might say, to the world. A wall in which I can't actually experience what other people are feeling in their sensations. I can't actually know what's going on in their mind, in their emotional life, because I am filtered and hindered by my form. And that acts as an agent which creates and establishes the appearance of separation. In, in that, we see too that in our own mind, body, and the whole form which is taking place, yet as we get more in touch with ourselves, we can begin to see others in a different way. I may not be able to experience your sensations. I may not know the degree of pain that you're going through. But I can look at this mind-body. I can recognize the composite of it and know somehow the similarity is extraordinary. The similarity is so extraordinary that maybe your experience and my experience are just one and the same. Maybe to the degree that you are me. And then one can move, let's say, there's a sensing for that, not as a feeling experience, but I would say as an awareness experience, as an intuitive experience, begins to bring to us another order, a movement towards another way of being connected. Now sometimes in our giving care and attention to the body and the life and the vibration and all that is taking place, sometimes we see too that our inner life and our emotional life has its impact on the body. Sometimes the impact on the body is such that what we're feeling in the body is an indicator of what's going on elsewhere. It may not always be so. Sometimes, as an, as an example of this, one may be sitting and one comes out in a great sweat. Temperature really comes out, one feels very hot, sticky, but sometimes there's such pulsations going on, the beads of sweat which breaking out. It may, I say may, it may indicate anger is coming out through the body. It's not an unusual combination of sweating, sweating and anger. And I, I've got a reminder of it. You may have heard of this sad, tr tragic figure in life of this man who has been labelled the uh, night uh, stalker who has been causing untold uh, violence to, to people in uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco, and they issued a photograph of the, 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 the suspect. And the following day, I think it was yesterday or the day before, he was, uh, he was apprehended. And one of the things which the newspapers referred to of people who saw this uh, uh, person 
was the degree in which he was sweating, the degree of sweat which was pouring out of, uh, out of him. And sometimes it's an indicator of when it's that intensity of tremendous rage. Rage against life for all the psychological things which bring that about and how destructive it, it becomes, the sad figure. And similarly, sometimes when we're, when we're uh, body temperature changes, and sometimes we go, we go cold. Sometimes the feeling life is getting cut off. It's not flowing freely, and it, and it very much affects the life and the condition of the body. Sometimes when we say something and we find ourselves scratching ourselves or fidgeting, it may be an expression of embarrassment. It may be an expression to us of, of guilt feelings about something. So our body language is in, in catching ourselves may well be, in our practice, we begin to feel more and just pick up some of the interrelatedness. Not looking, not speculating, but it's just shedding a little insight, a little self-knowledge. So some of the things which are occurring inside of us come out through our consciousness. <laughs> come out through that. Some come out through the body, sometimes both. Now in a situation like we have here in the meditation hall, there is a kind of social structure, isn't there? There's a social form, a kind of unspoken agreement or whatever with regard to the silence. But the silence isn't some again, another sacred cow in any way, but it's a general principle. It's not an absolute for us. And what I mean by that I'm referring to is that sometimes emotion comes in the sitting. Some dog pressure comes. And one feels one can't allow that to come through because of this agreement. And so one feels, well, I ought to go outside, I ought to go for a walk, I should go to my room or whatever. And just to remind you, please, that if that is occurring here, this is where it's happening for you, let it be here where it's happening. And in, in that, as I mentioned, sometimes there is some pressure, or some uh, uh, crying comes, or screaming comes, or whatever. Okay, it's okay, let it happen. And for everyone else who are sitting here and participating, it's also very useful because it sure keeps us here and now. <laughs> so, so one ought to give oneself and have the, the freedom there with, within, within the situ, situation. And within that, sometimes too, because we feel connected, before, because a certain closeness develops, we see someone going through a very hard time. And people do go through hard times and I feel it's a tremendous thing when people are willing to uh, put themselves into these uh, retreats to undergo this work which is incredibly challenging to oneself at, at, um, at every single level. And in doing that and in entering into this, into this uh, practice, sometimes there is the you know, once seeing someone's having a hard time, one does feel a connection with the person, and one wants to reach out, one wants to comfort, one wishes to hold the hold the person, and it's genuinely born of an affection and a, 
and love and all that's beautiful in the practice. But it may not be the wise thing to do. In this situation, it may not be. And that some people do need some space. They do need to be able and to be allowed through this open and very supportive environment to experience what's happening by themselves, to allow oneself, as it were, to go through and knowing that the resources for the support is all here. And it will be coming in a, in a word. But, as I say, some people do feel that need, that it's important for them to go through to work with. <coughs> and if it is, of course, extremely difficult, say. Just say, that's all. So there's this interconnectedness which is taking place, but it's an interconnectedness which is not in the form of a generalized sweeping statement. It's interconnectedness with a sense of the diversity. These two working together. Now, sometimes in our in, the, in our practice and in our, in our observation, and I think particularly with this um, kind of pra- um, practice, uh, vipassana, sometimes it can feel to be, and it's commented on from time to time, to be somewhat dry. Now, in other words, there are practices which seem far more juicy, and there are other practices which fulfill certain needs. And it may be that one, in one's practice and in letting go and giving up so much that one goes through a kind of arid period. An arid, arid period in which the heart, love, affection, compassion, devotion, somehow or other don't seem to be flowing in freely enough into the work. And so there can be this dry and ar- arid pe- period. With with that, when that is occurring, we need perhaps to emphasize in our practice more of the, the feeling aspect. Be in touch with what we're feeling a little bit more. Emphasize the feeling a little bit more. Not see the practice mechanically, but organically. Connect <laughs> more at that level. Now, in this inquiry and in looking looking at life, we see too, as I mentioned, this actuality of life, diversity and unity, separation and togetherness. And one might say, as we become more together, as we begin to experience more togetherness in our life, in our personal life, in our inner life, that sense of togetherness must begin to show itself outwardly. We must develop a greater sense for that with regard to the world. (coughs) In that, one of the things which any aware person comes to, shall we say, I'm putting it in a certain kind of way, but comes to recognize more and which troubles one's heart. What else can one say? It troubles one's heart to see a world which is so fragmented It's a world in which what often seems to be expressing is a relationship 
which is somehow borders on the abuser and the abused. And we see this situation in, in countless scenarios. Wherever area and direction that we look, look, look in, to some degree or other, this harsh and unnecessary reality of life keeps showing itself. The, the, the distinction of separation of the abuser and the abused. And all that gets carried over back and forth between the two. We have to look at that in our own life, in our relationship to both. We have to look at it outside of our lives and what that means for the earth itself. And so it's not unusual, is it, for us to be sympathetic and compassionate and concerned for the, for the underdog, for the abused. Our heart sees the abused and our heart reaches out for such a person, for such creatures, for such environment, for such a country or whatever it might be and we feel concern, we feel something. But our heart doesn't as easily reach for the abuser. And we see the abuser in all the countless forms which is there, and very easily the abuser brings out of us a kind of attitude of mind which, without our knowing it, reinforces it. It upholds it. We contribute to its maintenance. And it's not enough to see the diversity. It's what is essential, in a way, is to see that in that diversity there is, almost tragically, a relationship. Almost tragically, a certain kind of interconnectedness between the two. Not in any way that the abused, in any way, has invited that situation. But the dominance of one means the sub being subjected to by the other. And somehow or other, the two have to be brought into our relationship to life with our heart. What is going to be our relationship to the abuser? How will, we be, how will we be going to relate in a clear way, which isn't full of aggression, violence, reaction, and which only supports that? So to begin to hold the two in our consciousness is a means towards the exploration of this great divide on this earth and all the implications of it. The time has gone for condemnation. The time has, has gone for that kind of tone. We have to explore in new ways. You know, looking at this area of interconnectedness, 
religion, religious life has sought to and to come to um, some sense of it, some understanding. And I'm rather reminded, I was rather reminded today in a conversation, <laughs> I was rather reminded of my <coughs> time, in, time in the East, and particularly um, um, in India, where there's has been a long-standing tradition, both uh, of the various traditions, in which the figure, the often, shall we say, the, the intermediary, the intermediary, shall we say, between that which is regarded as divine and uh, that which is regarded as human. And the intermediary presents a, or represents or stands for something. And then those who come into the, the presence of uh, such a person can and do, can and do feel something in, is happening inside at the heart level which brings out a unitive sense, a oneness, a feeling of closeness too. And there's a very direct experience of that. And one wonders, well, how, how is that possible? How is it possible that certain human beings seem to have this capacity, this capacity by their personhood, by their being or whatever, to make others or make all around feel close to each other? And there's some kind of, perhaps difficult to explain, chemistry which is at work, but Regardless of the attempts to explain this phenomena, one of the things which is certainly is apparent is that it can, through the devotion uh, and through the impact, through the contact, love emerges, a feeling of love. It comes out of the heart, and in its coming out of the heart, there's an actual experience of that. Whether or not, at times, the individual is looking for it or not. And so one can see and appreciate and, uh, and perhaps um, understand to a great degree why uh, the intermediaries, why religion in its various orthodox forms, why celebration and religious services have their impact, why they continue to draw large numbers of people, because something heart-wise is touched. And in a world where the heart gets increasingly more neglected, where there's a danger of the heart drying up, not surprisingly, for the heart to be touched, and to be brought forth, and to be felt, to be truly felt, is wondrous, special, and which people wish to make contact with. But within that situation, within those situations, and, and having been one who has spent many times, many hours, various intermediaries, who has travelled the length and breadth of India, listening and talking and asking questions and pestering, especially pestering, <laughs> that one has to acknowledge the impact of such situations, of such, to use the, uh, the Sanskrit, of such a darshan. But 
frequently those experiences are rather confined to a time and place, to a particular situation. There may be continuity, there may be some carryover, but generally in the field of experience it comes, it stays for a while, and it passes. We have to go further than that for interconnectedness. We have to go through interconnectedness. I might say we have to go beyond interconnectedness. So there is a situation of our living in, in the world and sometimes in our sense of uh, religion and our, and our r relationship to life, we might, as some of the contemporary um, theologians say, we might speak of ourselves. We might refer to ourselves as being co-creators. There is a sense of something higher, something absolute, something ultimate, who is the creator, and we might be considered as co-creators. And it's not surprising that in the practice such as here, quite often, even though we may not have thought about it in any way for years, and it may just be a reflection of our childhood, we might think, well, is God in this practice? Is there, is there a creator in this practice? Whether one's views are theistic, atheistic, or agnostic, or whatever, such questions arise. And then we look, and we look at the world that we that we live in, and we may say, we may wonder, is this world which I am living in, is the ultimate truth of it, that it's unity, is that the ultimate truth of life? Interconnectedness, is that the ultimate nature of things? And is it that just our seeing differences and fragmentation and separation simply a way of looking because we're looking through coloured glasses, a way of looking because our mind is so much in differences and in conflict and fragmented, therefore we only see separation and division. We only see different countries when in fact the countries are merely lines in the mind and lines on pieces of paper and have no real existence. So is it that interconnectedness is the answer? That if we see that, if we live lives in that unitive spirit, therefore we have come to a fulfillment, spiritually speaking. Heart and mind can't rest there. That isn't enough. And so the inquiry and the seeing into life and, to, and into the, the nature of life must go steps further. It can't be such in life that you and I, as it were, rest on a place and say, this is it. Because in saying this is it, in a way, we set a wall, we set a line, we create a fixation and it, about this is it. <coughs> and in doing that, maybe we hinder the possibility of going beyond that. Maybe this which we say is it, maybe it just isn't. And maybe saying it makes it not. And so sometimes there can be, understandably, human beings who are inwardly, spiritually, psychologically, 
are integrated human beings, living with a, a genuine understanding about life, an understanding of life which enables that person, that woman, that man, to live life in a clear and caring way, in a balanced way in which suffering is not a predominant experience, but something rare, something unusual, something which, when it arises, the total attention goes to that experience of suffering and saying, what's happening here? To look and to understand that. And there are such hum hum human beings who haven't remarkably and beautifully haven't been tortured by this world. Sometimes, you know, they come on retreats, it's lovely. So, yet, in that integration with life, in that uh, unitive experience uh, with life, with, with, with a certain intuitive understanding about it, not full of concepts and words, not possibly being able to exp express it and articulate it, but it's there. And sometimes, and as the Buddha said, if you want to know whether such a person is integrated and is well established in life, there are two things, never forget this, there are two things which are essential for that. One is that you have to be with that person a long time. First impressions uh, 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 is the voice of naivety. It really is. And so many people are so impressionable. And in being impressionable, because somebody has a strong impact or strong vibes or whatever, one identifies. So first one must be with that person a long time to see whether he or she is well established in life. And the second which accompanies it, how is that person in a difficult time? How does that person handle difficulties? Where they're coming from, the outside or whether uh, the personal level. And these set some kind of measure, fun or way, not that we may know absolutely, to see to use our colloquial, where a person is really at. So in our seeing of human beings and, 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 and seeing that some human beings are reasonably well established in life, others are on the road to being well established in life. And something about we being well established is something about integration and harmony. And I would say particularly in this time, more towards, as I said at the beginning, more towards, as I said at the beginning of the, the talk, more of a, a global awareness. And somehow our interests and our focus and our activities in our daily life expressing something larger. Now, in, in that either being established or being on the road to being established, that unity and harmony may be present, but in the presence of it, still in a way to be seen as a way, a valuable way of looking at life. But what happens, of course, with, with us is that we then begin to create or begin to establish something in a way which transcends life, which goes beyond the field of life. And we might put that, we might term, state, state that as God, we may state that as nirvana or as absolute um, truth, Some, something which, in, or Buddhahood or whatever 
language we are used to hearing, something which, as it were, which is taken out of life and placed beyond it. And in that placing of it beyond it, of course, the mind has, it has created a gap. It's created a gap between what this is, this life you and I are living and breathing, and something other to it. And because we have a gap, a gap there, the human mind is never going to be satisfied with a gap. It's never going to be satisfied with a separation. So it's going to want, in some way or other, to fill the bridge, the gap. The gap which it's created. And sometimes we see in religion that sometimes that gap has got too big, so big for us, that we can't imagine the possibility in our own finiteness of being able to bridge the gap. And when the gap gets greater, it says something about our relationship to life. Because the very adherence to the gap means that we're moving towards that whatever, and correspondingly, we find ourselves moving away from life. Something isn't right, something is off-center, something is Im imbalanced. If the movement one way towards finding God and being with God somehow means that the earth and life on earth is somehow secondary, somehow lesser, somehow just, it's just um, a passing place to be. And religion and orthodox religion has unfortunately and sadly ensnared itself in this kind of division. So life and earth isn't treated meaningfully. It's treated in a purely transient way until one gets to that place on the other side. So we create, the, we establish the gap, we create the gap and the thing is, with the gap which, is, which takes place, there can be a whole variety of experiences, religious experiences. One establishes a God. One establishes, if the gap is very great, an intermediary as a, as a bridge. And the very power of the image and the power of the concept really does affect us. If one's got a stabilized concept to which one is giving devotion and attention and, and opening up the heart to, it will have its beneficial impact here. And so the religious experience through belief and through faith and trust really does transform. And, and the extraordinary thing is it may, there may be transformation taking place through the word, even if it's not the true reality, even if there is really no God at all up there, that there is no one who is a save, uh, an intermediary or a saviour or whatever because there's no, nothing to be intermediary with. <laughs> it can be a complete falsehood of life. A fiction born out of anxiety. 
And so there's this dilemma, this difficult situa situation where one, no matter what the experience is, one cannot actually know. And yet, we find, yet, just being on earth and just experiencing unity and harmony as such also isn't there. Sorry, also isn't it. Then what? To move away from life, to something other, to stay with, neither communicate something other. So if one, if in a way, if one speaks of going beyond diversity and unity, one is creating a gap here, a gap in the mind, through an idea and through an image. And if one doesn't have the gap, and let's go of the idea and image, one comes straight back to the unity. So what next? What does one do with this? In our relationship to life, in our, in our connection and communication with life, the element of awareness and total attention is so necessary. I might almost say absolutely necessary. <coughs> if you and I are really going to see through clearly, truly see once and for all, we're really going to see clearly then we really have to be f largely free of all the beliefs which we have cherished. All the concepts and the language which you and I have accumulated as reference points, as something to lean on or go to, all of them are totally irrelevant. They are burdens, they are weights in the mind. No matter how precious the word may be, no matter how many valuable experiences you may come to through another or, or through a service or through a form or, or, or through an established concept to which one feels very devoted, if, one is, if there's to be a breakthrough, a clear, undivided, important now, undivided seeing, this has to be let go of. let go of in a way in which there's no one to turn to, there's nowhere to go, there is no resource, there's no, nothing to lean upon, there's nothing to rely and depend upon, that's it. Taken away every prop, structure, support for the mind, everything which it's lent on in the past. And that leaves life and oneself in the uh, experience of life rather naked. So naked, in fact, that not surprisingly, fear and agitation begins to surface. And, when, and because one doesn't have the support, one just is, passes through and has to deal with that. It's as though, not always, it's as though that at times becomes a predominant shaking experience, a dark part of the path. 
not common for everybody, not experience for all, but always in possibility when the structures are being let go of, when they seem to be redundant. And in that, shall I say, in that um, redundancy which takes place, as I emphasize, the state of total attention is so necessary. A total attention, it's rather like to use an um, illustration of this. In our communications with um, another, and there's an interrelatedness. Often the communication, there is the frequency of re reference to the past, to memory, to the information and the idea and the image which we have acquired through the course of time. And in that course of time we've acquired this and we tend to, in the various forms, impose it into the world. We bring it into the world as a reference point. And because we bring it in, it might be beneficial and insightful, it might be knowledgeable, it might be um, pointless, but we bring it into the world so that it creates for us a certain kind of measure or yardstick. And we say, well, we have to do that. Of course we have to do that. We, we have to live like that. But it's too far to say this is truly the nature of things in the deeper sense. This is a conventional way. Necessary, and, and we might say from a standpoint, relative and functional. But tot in giving total attention with a background of calmness and steadiness isn't having this path with all the reference points that go with it as a reference point. Just as we did today with the guided meditation, total attention, not having the idea of this is my body, not having the idea of this is my possession, this is what I am, this is who I am. This has its origins in images from the past, nowhere else. And in our willingness to abandon that, not absolutely, but abandon it meaning it's not the reference point. It may arise, but it's not the reality, true reality. In that, there is this total attention for seeing in another way. That total attention, with the steadiness and silence which goes with it, is of such that it has, and it is important now, it has no characteristics to it at all. It has no marks, no signs, no features, nothing is distinguished in the total attention or full awareness or complete observation, whatever concepts feel. And so in that, in that total attention there, one is not saying diversity. One is not imposing that. One is not imposing and interpreting as unity. One is not going beyond this to find something other and creating a gap and all the implications, personal and historical, of it. 
but in that total attention there is an unshakable wisdom, an unshakable nature, an unshakable nature which isn't affected or influenced in any way by the stream of life's events, which is unshakable in presence and absence, and in birth and in death, and in coming and in going, is unshakable. And this does not require an intermediary, it requires nothing else, and it's not even bound up, so to speak, with our world, and yet not separate in any way. So in our meditations, in our, in our observations, it is give, truly give total attention. And that very total attention means that in that, and all that is in, implied in that, something, there's some kind of response of being which takes place, a response of being which is truly heart-opening. Seeing that, that the self-evident, shall we say, seeing the, the, the obvious is such that it brings out of one's being a response to life. And that response to life is called love, it's called compassion, it's called care, it's called participation, it's called co-creativity, it's called whatever you wish. And in that, one isn't trapped anywhere. Not, not trapped in the past, not trapped in interpretations of the present, not trapped in future speculations, not trapped in looking for something else, not trapped, not trapped in total attention. And in that, there's an unshakable wisdom. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings abide truly expansively. Let's have a three or four minute uh, quiet period together. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.